everybody. How's it going? I know that you just come here for the jokes, so I'm just going to start with the, <laughs> with the jokes. I'm, I'm on Twitter, and if you don't know, you know, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a kerfuffle on Twitter right now, um, and everybody's saying, well, not everybody. Some people are saying that, you know, Twitter's going to be going to be gone tomorrow. It's going to just dissolve into nothing, and if that happens, I, I will be okay with it because I read a joke on Twitter today that just, it just completes Twitter for me. It's a, I, I would be okay because it's, it's gotten to peak, peak Twitter, and so here it is. I just want to read, read you this joke. It's from a guy, Church Curmudgeon. It's, it's account, an account that makes fun of pastors, you know, which I love. He says, my pastor's excited about the FIFA World Cup starting tomorrow. He wants to watch someone else struggle to make three points in 90 minutes for a change. Isn't that the greatest joke? I have never, it's not going to get better than that. Twitter can shut down. It's fine. Um, and it's really prescient. It's really, really relevant to what's going on today because because um, I'm we're jumping into a topic. We are in this admittedly long series called Good News for Everybody, and we are boldly stepping into a, a lot of complicated topics, right? Um, and um, some of them controversial. And we're asking the question, okay, what is the biblical sexual ethic? And, and is it defensible anymore? Can we really, can we really lean into it? Uh, can we hold on to it as Christians today? And we're moving into one of the topics, the final big, big topic um, that is related to the Christian sexual ethic, and that's uh, the question of transgenderism. Right? So, so, you know, no big deal. <laughs> oh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to struggle uh, to, you know, to, to deal with this. Um, but before I begin, I do need to make some disclaimers. Right? So two disclaimers. So now you, you know it's really going to be great. Um, first, like, I've done a, a lot of reading on, on issues of sex, sexuality, gender for, for many years. Not just in the lead of this. It's something that, it, that interests me. Um, and, and one thing that I know is that people who experience gender dysmorphia, which is the psychological term for feeling yourself to be in the wrong biological body, um, do not generally appreciate the term transgenderism, right? They, don't, they just don't like it called that, but like you're left saying, well, what, what do we call it? How, how do we talk about this as an issue? And like we talked about two weeks ago, you know, talking about things as an issue to people who actually experience them, is, it's kind of difficult. Um, because we're talking about a very lived and real and painful thing for some people, and then we're trying to turn it into an issue. And so I just want to put that out there and just say, look, I, there's a lot of terminological difficulties in just talking about this stuff, and so I just want to apologize. You know, I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to be insensitive or label people or put them in boxes, but in order to talk about things, you have to kind of come up with categories. That's just the way it is, or else you can't talk about them, which is what it feels like what we need to do when it comes to this issue right now. Like, you feel like you can't talk about it. So let's, let's just talk about it, and, and no offense intended, no, no arrogance or rudeness intended by, by just having to choose words. So asking for grace, disclaimer number one. Um, and also, I just, I just want to ask you, um, if you are sensitive to this and, and how we talk about this, just be prepared. Like, I don't plan on saying anything unkind, um, but yeah, just, just talking about it in a big picture way, talking about something that can be very personal to people, either to you personally or to people you know, it can be hard. Uh, the second disclaimer is that um, I realize uh, gender dysmorphia is really categorically different than the other topics we've been looking at, right? We, like, like sexuality, homosexuality, sexual ethics in general, and it feels like we just lump the, the transgender question right on top of this thing. Um, and it, and uh, honestly, I'd rather not because I think it's sort of a very, a, a very different kind of issue a very different kind of question, but I have to do so because of the cultural context in which we live in. LGB, lesbian, gay, bi, and then what? T, trans, and then Q plus, right? The list keeps growing. I don't mean that in a rude way. It just does, <laughs> um, right? But, but so, so culturally, this issue, T, transgender, uh, issues are lumped together with issues of sexuality, lesbian, gay, bi. And it's funny, a lot of, there's this, this kind of underground secret if you start to read and study about this, a lot of people who are lesbian or gay or bisexual don't think that this goes together. <laughs> They're like, why are we talking about this issue which is separate? It's not like a sexuality issue, it's, it's something else, it's a, it's a gender issue. But culturally, we've lumped all these things together, and so then we have to talk about them in this series when we're talking about sexuality and, and gender and culture and stuff like that. Um, but it's a funny, it's, it's, it's not a natural pairing. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, at least I don't think so. So, you know, 
I'm just going to say, like, because because a lot of people are uncomfortable with the, the connection between the two. I'm not trying to say these two things are the same. I'm not trying to say sexuality issues and gender issues are the same, okay? Even though I'm talking about them in the same sermon series. So great, two disclaimers. Wonderful. You know, you know it's going to be fun, right? So there's plenty of minds to step on. Um, so with that said, let's pray <laughs> because I think we really need to pray because we're getting into sensitive things, okay? So would you do that with me? Uh, Jesus, we think, I thank you that there's nothing we need to fear, but we don't even need to fear culture. We don't need to fear talking about things uh, where we can, we can rely on you, Lord, that you're going to lead us, that Holy Spirit, you will, you will lead us into truth, into knowledge. Lord, you, you, you'll teach us how it is we can exist in this world with, with confidence, clarity about the gospel, with love for people, with the compassion that you have. Lord, would you fill us with those things? Would you take away and convict us of pride? Would you help us to think biblically, to think according to your wisdom, to think in the power of your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been following along, you know we've been exploring the, the historic Christian sexual ethic, and I've articulated this way, and that's just a composite sketch of what I think, and I talked about this for eight weeks now, um, what I think the Bible teaches on sex, and that's that sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be expressed only in the context of marriage, which is a lifelong, covenanted, exclusive partnership between one man and one woman, and I should, for the sake of this argument, this, this particular uh, discussion say one biological man and one biological woman for the sake of uniting and procreating. That's how I've, I've defined it. Um, I'm, I've made no effort to actually defend this. I'm just telling you it's, it's, it's in scripture. This is the composite sketch. Go back and look. I, I think everyone would agree that historically this is how Christians have understood the Christian sexual ethic always. And it's only until very recently that there's been questions even asking, is that really what the Bible says? And we've addressed some of those as we've gone along here. Uh, but my hope with this series has been to recover the reasoning behind the biblical teachings on sex and sexuality. Because in week one, we, we looked at this quote from Todd Wilson. I think it's still true. It's that for an increasing number of Christians, the Bible's teaching about human sexuality no longer makes any sense. At best, it seems quaint like an antique that no longer serves any good purpose. But what centuries of Christians have always believed has nowadays become a point of stumbling. I really do think this is kind of the, the cultural context in which we come into questions about sex, sexuality, gender. Um, we come in sort of on the, on the back foot, feeling as if our arguments um, don't make as much sense as, as they used to. Even Christians who probably would say, yeah, I still believe this thing, but they're, they're having trouble uh, recuperating or understanding the reasoning behind it. Like the why. Why is this the sexual vision? Why is this the biblical Christian view? When it comes to the historic Christian view on sexuality, many people wonder on what basis can we make arguments that people ought to or ought not to have any particular kind of sexual arrangement. As contemporary people, we increasingly, I would say, lack the intellectual resources to do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we lack the ability to defend our positions. To be super clear, though, I'm not saying we're dumb. I don't think we are. <laughs> I really, um, I've, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I've told you this before, I'm a New England snob. I like being smart. I like people thinking I'm smart, because I'm a snob. It's, I'm not, I'm not, this is a bad thing about me, just to be clear. Um, we are not dumb. But I'm saying, I want, to, I want to say this, I think that the, this feeling that I think a lot of us have comes from a philosophical problem. We have a philosophical problem. I want to one day write a book, and I want to call it, Allow Me to Bore You. <laughs> because, because I realize that what I just said is like, oh, just wake me up in 20 minutes, right? You know, this is going to be, we're going to talk about philosophy at 10, 15 in the morning. Oh, gosh. Um, but I really find this fascinating. I really think it's true. I, I think that we have a philosophical problem. More specifically, to bore you even more, we have an epistemological problem. Uh, epistemology is the science of knowing, the philosophy of knowing, knowledge. How can we say that we know things? That's what epistemological questions concern. We have a knowing problem. We increasingly do not have a good basis on which to say confidently what is right and what is wrong. 
is a modern philosophical cultural problem. It is very deep into our society. What's true? What's false? Is there such a thing as truth? Is, even if it does exist, can we as human beings come to it and know it with confidence? Can we know or make value judgments, moral judgments, confidently, universally? These are philosophical issues, epistemological knowledge problems. Okay, let me illustrate what I mean. And I'm, I'm going to do something that I don't like to do, and that's I'm going to do something for shock value. So I want you to be prepared, though, because I don't want you to just react. Okay? I'm going to do something that is going to be like, whoa. Um, but before I do that, okay, so what I want you to do is just collect yourself for a moment. I've, I've warned you what I'm about to do, right? So I, so I don't want you to just react. I warned you what I'm about to do. I, instead, what I want you to do, when, when I put up the thing I'm about to put up on the screen, so exciting, so exciting. Um, I want you to pay attention to your thoughts and your feelings as you react to what I'm going to show you, okay? And you just be aware of your thinking. Just be aware of your thinking. Be aware of your reaction to what I'm about to show you. Okay, so here goes. You probably have saw this in the news maybe a couple weeks ago. Maybe, maybe you missed it. Um, Laura, you can put it up now. Um, title uh, of, a, of, a, of a piece, and I've just, just kind of selected some of it. It says, Miss Universe pageant will be owned by a woman for the first time in its 70-year history. Did you guys see this a couple weeks ago? Yeah. Interesting thing about this, if we read on, actually, it's too small to read. Oh, look it. Oh, no, still can't read it. <laughs> um, what the article goes on to say is, is, is that the, the, the Miss Universe pageant was owned by a, by a Thai um, kind of billionaire they call her the third richest woman in the world. Her name is Anne, and I can't pronounce her last name. I'm sorry. Um, but the thing is, and what the article says, is she's actually a trans woman. So let me ask you something. And I, 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 I'm not trying to elicit some response. But what do you think about the headline? I, I'm, again, like, maybe you're a conservative on this issue, and you're thinking, this is so stupid. You know, you're, you're reacting. You're having a strong reaction. Maybe it's pride. No offense, but maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe you should think about it. Maybe it's pride. Uh, like, maybe you're, you're thinking about, like, this is just so, so stupid, so illogical. That's not, that's just, this, this article clearly is making a, a very uh, strong assertion that it is significant that a woman has bought the Miss American pageant. And we might say, by some reasoning, that that would be true if, in fact, a woman had bought <laughs> the Miss American pageant. But actually... A, a trans woman bought the Miss American pageant. That is a woman who was born a biological male and has transitioned by some process to become, become, right? So you see how all the words that I'm using are contested and difficult? How, how difficult it is to talk about these things, right? So if you're a conservative, you think, no, that's not, this is just ridiculous. And then if you're, if you're maybe more liberal on this issue, and uh, welcome, glad to have you here. Uh, like, let's, let's reason together. Let's, let's think together. Um, maybe you just say, well, yeah, sure, why, why not? Why can't we say that a woman bought the Miss America pageant? What's wrong with that? On what basis could we know what a woman is? On what basis could we know or, or determine uh, what is or isn't a woman? Why should biology have the last say? I ask you to consider your thoughts and your feelings. So just sit with them for a minute. And just however you feel, whether you find this dismaying, like wondering, how do we get here? How do we get here that this happens? And by the way, this was how it was reported across the board, not in, all, in almost all news sites that I could find it in. Uh, it was essentially this presentation of facts. How do we get here? So, so maybe you're angry, maybe, you're, maybe, maybe you think, maybe you're angry at me for pointing it out and questioning the logic of it. Also fair. But just like, let's sit and think for a minute. And I want you to ask the question. Just the logical question, is the Miss Universe pageant owned by a woman? What is the difference between a trans woman and a woman? This article implies that there is no difference, to the point where you could say they're the same thing. And does that difference, if there is any, mean anything? Is biological distinction between men and women, is it significant or meaningful in any way? Just questions to ask. Questions to ask. 
And whether you uh, find this wrong or if it doesn't bother you at all, uh, I think it's worth noting that something significant has gone on in our culture that points to the knowing problem. See, uh, in a world in which the mainstream, a mainstream news outlet can write a story about this I think, and present it this way, I think is, is remarkable. That's just, I think, no matter what, how you feel about the issue, it is remarkable that mainstream news can present this facts this way. The fact that some people read this and get really mad and think, no, a woman did not buy the Miss America, Miss Universe pageant, and others read and say, yep, that's exactly what happened. I have no problem with that. And the whole other set of people who are kind of in the middle scratching their heads, very confused by everything that's going on and whatever, what was going on in the world, like, lets us know and shows us that we have a, a knowing problem. We have lost um, ways of shared reasoning and knowing what's true. And I would say, and here's where I get to get really boring, uh, it's a problem that's been fermenting for 250 years now, and it's just been uncorked now, I love that analogy, um, in, in society. And the problem that we have actually comes from the influence, or starts from the influence of a Scottish philosopher by the name of David Hume. In 1739, David Hume opened a philosophical can of worms when he articulated what is known as the is-ought problem. The is-ought problem. And his assertion was, what ought to be cannot rationally be deduced from what is. That sounds complicated. I promise you it's not that complicated. Sometimes this is also known as the fact-value distinction. Hume didn't call it that, but people, philosophers have come and said, basically what Hume is saying is this. He's saying that there's a distinction between facts and values. That is, that it is impossible to derive ethical claims, that is, values and oughts, from facts, what is. Hume is arguing that that's not rationally feasible for people to do. Essentially, what Hume pointed out and calls out, he noticed that all moral philosophers have presumed a connection between what is, up to, up to his point in time, 1700s, have presumed a connection between what is and what ought to be. So, that's to say, moral philosophy has always read intended purpose into created design. So they look at people, the facts of, of, of life as we know them, things that are just are, and, and they would derive values from people. And we, we talked about some of this um, two weeks ago when we talked about homosexuality, right? Remember, I, I told you I was going to make an argument for the biblical sexual ethic when it comes to homosexuality, and I told you you weren't going to find it convincing. And that was that, but, but, but up until right around this time, people did find it convincing. And that's this two, two facts about, about human biology that everyone knows are true. That's that uh, men and women have complementary sex organs, number one. And number two, procreation has only ever been the result of one man and one woman's genetic material combining and, and becoming people. Those are biological facts. No one disputes those. Historically, uh, moral philosophers would say, well, that's a fact, and it points to some guiding principles, some guiding values, some guiding oughts. This is called just natural theology. From what is, we can get some sense of what ought to be, because if God created us this way, then he's intending something in it. Historically, that has been a very convincing argument. Since David, Hume, David Hume's time, we've dissociated these two things, the is's from the oughts. We've separated is's is from oughts. David Hume, who actually was interested not really so much in destroying moral philosophy, but coming up with a more, what he would think of as a rational moral philosophy, moral theory, he suggests that there is not really a rational connection between what is and what ought, what ought, what ought to be and that there is no connection between facts and values. And so he, he kind of dismantles that idea. And, and it's really, he's had a lot of influence in our culture uh, to the point that we are now living in a culture that is experiencing what Dallas Willard, yes, finally, what Dallas Willard calls the disappearance of moral knowledge. 
Dallas Willard describes the, what has happened as a result of this idea getting out and pervading into the world. He says, the upshot is that it is no longer possible to appeal to moral criteria in a way that had been possible in, times, uh, in other times and places. In consequence, moral disagreement becomes unresolvable by rational means. Individual moral commitments seem to be entirely arbitrary. And attempts at persuasion in moral matters will be unavoidable uh, will be unavoidably manipulative. McIntyre, another philosopher that D Dallas is engaging with, characterizes this as a moral calamity. Dallas Willard, who is very smart, <laughs> and who I'm a big fan of, right? He says that something's happened as a result of this way of, of dissociating the is and the is's from the oughts, and this way of thinking about the world, and he calls it a moral calamity because it's made it impossible for for us to have universal shared value systems, okay? And I'm not asking you to evaluate that. I'm not evaluating that. I'm saying that's his thesis. Um, and I think it helpfully, it's helpful to you as, as a Christian. Like if you're a Christian and you're into this, and if you're not, glad you're here. <laughs> but if you're a Christian and you feel increasingly as if you are without the ability to defend and to rationalize the historic Christian sexual ethic, which I think a lot of people feel that way, even to the point where it feels like the moral arguments that you're making are manipulative, or they feel like you feel like, or people feel them to be manipulative, like, oh, you're just imposing your values on me, right? You ever hear that? No, no, you've never. Yes, yes, you hear it all the time. You hear it all the time, right? Um, you need to understand why. This is why. It's because the way that we have started to think in our culture actually makes all universal moral arguments impossible, except for personal moral arguments. You're allowed to have, according to this logic, your own personal morality, but you can't deduce or, or claim that there is any moral authority on other people just, just basically, David Hume has dismantled that. Or he thinks he did. Or some people think he did. According to Hume, since you can't get an ought from an is, so now when a person is, is, is born a, a biological male that is born with an X and Y chromosome and with complementary uh, sex organs and brain chemistry, like all the things that come along with biology, just facts, now, it becomes very difficult to say that they ought, to, ought not to become a female. Because who's to say? Just because they were born a male doesn't mean they can't become a female. It, why should an is, biological facts, imply an ought that they ought to continue being a male or identifying as a male or be identified as a male in the news? There's been a dissociation. So where does it leave us? Where does it leave us? Well, honestly, I think it leaves many of us feeling uncomfortable, on our back foot, feeling as if we can't defend the things that we believe. It leaves us wondering how we'll ever be able to navigate the world as people of faith. It leaves us feeling like the world has just abandoned moral reasoning. And it leaves us thinking that maybe the best thing that we can do is be super defensive, take back the reins of power, because the world has gone crazy. But can I suggest, may I just suggest, I think this is a great place to be as Christians. I, I love, I love being a follower of Jesus in this culture. It's so much easier than it was before. I know that's not the conventional thinking, <laughs> but I'm a weirdo. I think if we just keep our heads on straight and we keep focused on what we're called to be focused on, that we have a huge advantage in this world and in this culture and in a world that is morally calamitous. Tim Keller says, the best way to do ministry in a secular place is not to answer people's questions, but to question people's answers. And I think people's answers are just begging to be questioned. <laughs> <laughs> just begging to be questioned because it's, it's, it's clear that, that despite the ruse of rationality, we are not a rational people or a rational culture. 
the, the premises of secularism are very difficult to defend. If we simply would just ask a few pointed questions, we'd find that most people can't defend a kind of moral world in which is's and oughts are separated, in which facts and values are distinct, and in which um, people think, in which personal morality is all that matters, and that you can make up your own personal morality. So what if my morality says I can kill you and it doesn't matter? Well, what do you do then? <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> so, you know, just to clarify, right? But I mean, but you're like, if you don't have a, a universal, universal standard, then on what basis can you have a functioning society? And how's it going for us? Is it going really well? Everyone's personal morality? Is it going really well? Uh, we say we value human rights. and On what basis do human rights get established if we have no thing, no ability to look at people and say, well, people were created, they are therefore imbued or given certain rights. On what basis do they have universal rights? On what basis can anyone have any rights if we have this fact-value distinction? How can you know what a good life is and what a bad life is? How can I tell someone who's spending all their time on the street corners in Seattle shooting up all the time that they're not living a good life? On what basis can I say that? We all know that that's not life. Dallas Willard says, no morality or ethic can effectively govern life it's not, if it's not assumed to be based on how things are, if it's not assumed to be based on reality. The fact is that no one ever, deri no one ever derives oughts from anything other than is, and it's always the background story of reality that determines what people take to be their obligations. Dallas Willard says, we're all just playing at this. It's really not true. We really don't believe that there's no created order. We really don't believe that there is, isn't or ought not to be any kind of moral order, unless you're a total nihilist, which few people can do for very long. Teenagers, maybe, <laughs> right? But then eventually you're just like, oh, this is exhausting. I have to believe in something, right? And if you start to believe in something, then you have to assume actually that is's and oughts are connected and that I have to have a background story about what's right and good. And I have to have these things connect up. If I don't have these things connect up, everybody's doing it. You know what we really just have a difference is? We, we, we all believe that is's and oughts ought to be connected. We all believe that facts ought to impact values. We just don't actually agree on what the background story is. So if you didn't follow any of that, right, and I, I realized this was the risk I was taking in getting really philosophical, that's totally okay. Here's the great news. doesn't matter if you don't understand it. Here's just the great news and the thing which should make you confident as a Christian and as someone going out into the world. It doesn't matter if you understand philosophy. All that matters to you is that you understand your background story. That's what matters. Genesis 1, 26, 28. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, and God blessed them. Here's the Christian background story. From this background story, we get the is's and the oughts. God created them male and female. You, they are, they are male and female. People are either one or the other. God created them a way with a specific intention behind it. That life would be sustained. That it would be a good, meaningful thing. That maleness and femaleness, biological males and biological females, and they're accompanying, though not hyper- Connected gender roles, we'll talk about that in a little bit, that those things would be, would be good. We have, we don't have a philosophy, we don't need a philosophy, it's okay to not have philosophy. I read so you don't have to. <laughs> that's, that's how I feel about it. And thank you for letting me do it, I love it. Um, here's what you do have to do, you have to understand this is your story, and it's a good story. God created the male and female, and he blessed them. It's good to have the body, the sex, the biological sex that you have. It's good. It can make for a meaningful, blessed, full life. To just be the person God created you to be. 
the invitation that we have in the story, the creation story, is to understand that God intended you to be who you are. And we can just put our flag in that story and just say, isn't this a better story than I just have to make up who I am and define my own thing? And how exhausting and anxiety-producing that could be. My gender, my biological sex is a gift to me. It's God saying, this is who you are. It's not limiting. It's freeing to be told in an appropriate, non-domineering sort of way, I've created you and you have unique and special and, and great purpose in life. To be a woman is to have great callings and great abilities and you can use those things however you want in many great, blessable, satisfying ways. To be a man, likewise, you have a great calling and a great purpose and so much freedom in it. These are not constraints. These are not difficulties. To have a little definition in your life according to a created purpose is a good and great blessing. This is the story that we have we need to lean into this story. We need to not be ashamed of this story. This story absolutely answers the philosophical questions that people have because they are suffering and they're dis discouraged and confused about who they are. And it's not good. It's not yielding good fruit. We have an alternative story, and I think it bears good fruit. It's blessed. Don't be afraid to say it. The whole underpinning of the Christian sexual ethic is it comes down to this. We believe something that to the world seems pretty crazy, that we can assert an ought from an is. We can read into who we are some part of our calling as people. It's crazy. And I can, I can then go out into the world with love and compassion and invite people who don't know the story to know the story and to accept that God has created them to be something. He intends something from how he's created them. The gift of their bodies and their sex, their biological sex, actually leads them into a story, into God's good intention, into a blessed life. You can look at what is, who you are, and understand it to be a gift from God and receive it accordingly and go out with confidence that you have purpose. We can tell that story and raise it up as a good story. You can assume God is good and he has a life. He's called you to into it. It's a good life. Might not look like everyone else's life. Not all men and all women are supposed to live exactly the same way or according to some pattern, but you are called to be a unique person called with things, and it's good. We can invite other people to consider faith, and when we do that, we are inviting them to consider a new background story, the story of God's created purpose and intention for them, a story that involves them, one that will, as a, as a, as a replacement background story to their old story, Guide their moral reasoning. Get them some oughts. When we invite people to faith, we are inviting them to believe in a God who created them, who loves them, who considers their needs and has their interests in mind, who has done everything. He's forgiven them, taken away their sins so that they might have a renewed relationship, renewed dependence. And he reveals to people through the ministry of Jesus Christ what a good life can and should be. That's why Jesus was so into living a blessed life. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has some crazy ideas about what makes for blessing. We can just present those story to people like, like God calls you into a blessed life. Leslie Newbegin, another, another, man, we are bringing back all the OG uh, sermon people. I love Leslie Newbegin. He says this, if we take the Bible in its canonical wholeness, that is the entirety of the Bible, as we must, then it is best understood as history. It is universal cosmic history. It interprets the entire story of all things from creation to consummation and the story of the human race within creation and within the human race, the story of people called by God to be the bearers of the meaning, uh, and, uh, uh, meaning of the whole and at the very center, the story of the one in whom God's purpose was decisively revealed by being decisively affected. It is obviously a different story from the stories that the world tells about itself. If you are saying, how do I go into this world that seems to be just 
have its head popped off and doesn't, doesn't seem to know up from down. We go with the better story, the universal story, what God is doing in the world. We go with the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's come into the world. God's purposes are centered on Jesus Christ. He is rebuilding, remaking, restoring the story into the world, his purposes in the world, through what Jesus has done on the cross, through him working in the church. We go out with a message, and it is a powerful message. And we can live into that story, and it is an answer enough to people's questions. If we really go in and understand what it is, if we really just present to people, man, this, this, is, this is a better story. Can we offer up this story as an alternative to the stories that the world tells about itself? Because the, what, the stories that the people, secular people, people who don't know God are telling them about the about what their significance is, will always, in, in, in increasingly short time spans, will always become fruitless. If your story is, mm, purpose of my life is to make a lot of money and to be satisfied, welcome to the recession, <laughs> right? If, if, if your story is, mm, purpose of my life is to travel the world and to be a free person and to sow my wild oats, COVID, not going anywhere, Right? If the story of my life is that, I don't know, that I'm going to be well-liked, just give it just give it 20, give it a day. You're going to find somebody who doesn't like you. I find them all the time. There's a lot of stories we could live by. Christians just have a different story. We've just said, this is our, this is our story. God created you. God came to earth, took on flesh, died as a sacrifice to restore a relationship with me, to take away all the things that were getting in the way, and now I can just confidently live in his grace, and I can see the world around me as just a place where I just see his, his, his hand everywhere, and I can just like live like, like an idiot, totally ignorant of philosophy, just thankful for what Jesus has done, and I'm going to be happier than David Hume, <laughs> or whoever. <laughs> it's so much better to live in this story. To get a little bit of clarity around these things, I just, I just want to talk um, really specifically um, because there's, there's a, bit, a little bit of a problem, right? For somebody who feels, like, so talking to, to pe thinking about people who actually feel gender dysmorphia, who feel not at home in their bodies as if they have the wrong biological sex. Um, I mean, the, the obstacle is that they, they, they look at other people and they say, well, you guys also seem happy with your bodies, right? You guys feel like you fit, right? And um, I think that we shouldn't be naive about the story. I think the story is meaningful and it, and it has ethical implications, but it doesn't solve all the, the lived difficulties of people who have gender dysmorphia. We shouldn't promise it. Um, but that said, I, I think it's still worth, worth talking to people about it and inviting them into this story. Because um, well, one, one thing, and we'll get, get to this in a second, uh, one thing is clear is that, well, actually no, I'm going to hold off on that for a second. So like I un we understanding in, in with, with, with empathy and sympathy to people who, who are not comfortable in their bodies, just telling them, oh, but God made you male or woman, he created you, that seems a little uh, unsatisfying. But again, like we, just, we, we, we can keep coming back to it and just say, look, it, just give it some time. Give it some time and live into it a little bit. I do think that's, a, that's enough of an answer. Three things I think the church has historically done. Just like in week one, we talked about three things that are not implied in the, the biblical sexual ethic. I want to talk about three things that, that we don't need to do in this conversation. Um, the first thing is that we don't need super restrictive gender roles. The solution to a world that, that is confused about maleness and femaleness is not to come back. Women wear dresses and make dinner and, you know, stay at home. All, this, all the stupid things the church has taught, you know. <laughs> Those are, I, I said stupid. My wife always tells me, if you're ever going to say stupid, you, you, you already messed up. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, and she's not here, though. Ha-ha! Uh, no, I'll hear about it later. Don't worry. Um, okay, so I don't mean, I don't mean stupid because, like, you know, 
but I'll t- <laughs> I kind of mean it. I mean it in my heart. In my heart, I mean that it, that was stupid. Um, but we just don't need that. Like, we, we don't need to fix the problem of confused gender by just saying men are this way absolutely all the time. All the time, you know, like women are, women are just, yeah, they, they, they love to arrange flowers <laughs> and uh, wear dresses and, and they just love pink, you know. We don't need to just, like, reinforce that and act like it's really true because it's just not true. And we're not going to reconstruct some culture around this. It's just not, you know, we shouldn't present men that, that we should all just be, you know, buff like me. You know, your prototypical man right here wearing glasses, reading books, you know, just like most men. That's a joke. Um, we don't need to do this. We don't need to come up with super restrictive gender roles. Uh, the church has react- reacted against cultural t- trends to dissociate gender as an identity, identity or sex, logical category, by just... The, the, the gospel was not written in 1950. We shouldn't act like it was. We do not need, in order to defend the gospel, in order to defend biblical sexual ethic, to go back to 1950. Just, just, that's just a wrong idea. Just, just throw it out. Um, there is a diversity in the world of men and women. Some women demonstrate more typically masculine traits, and some men demonstrate more typically feminine traits, and some people don't feel connected to either, and this is okay. This is a, there's lots of diversity in the world. This is the kind of diversity we can embrace. Um, it's okay. So when we present a gospel to a person who has experienced dysmorphia, we're not saying, Jesus will make you feel like a man or a woman. But no, he won't. You know, I mean, maybe he will. I don't know. But that's not the promise. The promise is that however you are, you can work uh, and, and hold who God has made you to be and just say, okay, I'm just going to accept this. And I'm going to mine this is for all the meaning and purpose that it can have. I'm not going to fight against it anymore. I'm going to just say, okay, so I'm not super typically masculine or feminine. That's okay. But I'm going to be a woman or a man in the way that I am, and that's okay. Like, so we don't have to come up here and just have the, the hoorah. I know some, some guys, you ever go to men's retreat? Anyone, men go to a men's retreat at church? I, I don't like them. <laughs> right? You know, I mean, I'll go. I'll go for everyone. Sean's going to do it, and he, it's going to be great because Sean is a dude's dude, right? Sean grew up in the woods in Colorado, right? You grew up fighting bears, right, Sean? I love, and I love Sean. But Sean and I, like, we don't, I mean, we ski. We ski. Sconch, it, it's, when we ski, Sean skis well, and I ski poorly. That's all, but we ski. <laughs> we do things together, right? And it's good, and it's fine, and there's diversity. Now, I don't feel bad about Sean being, like, fighting bears. I like to read about fighting bears. <laughs> what? Even better, I like to watch movies about fighting bears. And that's okay. I'm okay with me. I hope you're okay with me. Maybe you're not. Maybe you judge me. I don't care. I'm good with me. And if you're just like a woman, you're just like, oh, I don't like to go to the women's Christmas party. Well, actually, no. We have awesome women's Christmas parties. But at my old church, the women's Christmas party was, like, was flower arrangement, I think, at one point. And, so, and I'm like, my wife was like, because she's not that way either. And that's okay. It's fine. And then she goes and she arranges their flowers. Oh, yeah. We have this... <laughs> If you ever come to my house uh, around Christmas time, Molly puts out her wreath that she made at one of these women's Christmas parties. It's a metal bar. It's literally just metal and has one little flower thing on it. And she did it just to say, ha-ha! <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> how, how different she is and how different she thinks of her femininity. And that's okay. And it's okay. And it's all okay. It'll be fine. Okay. Another thing that we not need to do, and this is, this is going to be an interesting one, we don't need to be anti-science or anti-psychology. Uh, this is a little complicated in, in our given moment or time, but um, can I, the, the fact is, uh, what I'm suggesting here, a lot of people would list, listen to this message. Like, we're putting these up on YouTube, and we were joking this morning, it's like, well, they're still up. Maybe they'll be taken down. Like, because a lot of people would, would look, listen to what I'm saying, and this is hateful, this is anti-trans speech, right? 
I, I mean, I don't know. I don't think that's what I'm going for. You be the judge. Uh, but I'm really not. Like, 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 people would look at this and say, no, science wouldn't support this kind of argument. And, and science supports the fact that men can become women. Here's, here's something Dr. Leonard Sachs. Leonard Sachs is um, not a Christian, uh, but a psychologist who, he says this. He says, there is today a widespread assumption that if a boy says he is really a girl or a girl says she is really a boy, that child will be happier, healthier, and more fulfilled in their uh, uh, if the grown-up facilitated transition to the other sex, there is no long-term study that provides support for this assumption, not one. And there is compelling evidence that this assumption is often inaccurate. We live in a country where science is not science, science is politics. I'm just, I'm just telling you that, honestly. You know what, especially in regards to this, and I can prove it to you. Because I know when I say that, you say, oh, here come the crazy Christians <laughs> right, talking about how oh, science is just a big conspiracy. The nations, in the past three years, the nations of England, Norway, and Sweden, bastions of fundamentalism, right? <laughs> right. No, the most, some of the most secular countries in the world have all reversed their position on this question. They used to be... If a child comes in expressing gender dysmorphia, immediately give them hormone blockers and intervene aggressively, medically. And in the past three years, on the basis of the scientific evidence, they've all said, no, actually we don't do that. They're not saying like, so, so under 18, if you go in in England, Sweden, and Norway, and you say these things, they'll say, we're not gonna intervene at all. We're not gonna have hormone blocking. We're not gonna do surgery. Until, until you're 18, if, if at the point of you being 18, like, you still want to do it. So they're not, like, taking a Christian position by any means, right? But they're saying evidence does not support this theory that if people think that they are in the wrong body, that we should aggressively and, and agree with them. They're actually saying that does more harm to people than, than good. So who's anti-science? sounds like actually we <laughs> in the United States have probably made this like a political issue because we're so divided. So I would humbly submit that it is possible to be happy and healthy and, a per and yet still to be a person who experiences gender dysmorphia and that there is not always a need to intervene with, with you know, the, the, the ways that American science American science has said that is important. And by the way, the days are numbered. <laughs> I, would, I would wager within five years, the whole approach of American science will, will crumble. You want to know why? Lawyers. Lawyers. Thank you, lawyers. Um, right? Because there's liability issues. It's like we're doing harm to people by intervening in this way. Like in the long term, it's going to become clear that... And I'm not, I'm not saying science is saying... Never give people homework. Never let people... I'm not trying to misrepresent science to you. They, they do not take the, the historic Christian position. And that's, that's okay. Like the, but, but, but our position is not like out of step with science. In fact, we just say, yeah, we think people actually can be happy, healthy, and would do, do better to just consider the story that God has created them and, and live into that. This is not, a, this is not an anti-science position. And the last thing, and I know I've kept you over time, and I apologize about that. We'll wrap up real fast. We won't do a, Danielle said, if I ever go long, I shouldn't do a last song. So we'll wrap up and then dismiss before I forget and do it. Um, we don't need arrogance. We just don't need arrogance. Don't need pride. You don't need your anger. You don't need your ire or dismay or just, you know, you don't need to own the libs or whatever. Twitter. Um, Look at, here's Matthew 9, 36 and 38. Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. You probably know the second verse there, harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But I think it's worth considering the context of that statement. Jesus looks at a crowd of people who are distressed and dejected. 
like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them. Jesus looks at people who are down and out, confused, anxious, angry, lost, embittered, unsatisfied with life, and he says, the harvest is plentiful. And yet, Christians have looked at our culture full of distressed, dejected, embittered, angry, anxious people, and we say, whatever will we do? Come on. We've got a better story. Jesus went out confidently into crowds of people who just like had wrong ideas about what life is like, and he was able to go there because he had this story. I've come for your sake. I am life and light and peace. I'm, I'm leading you into restoration and renewal. I'm going to die to take away your sin so that you would be reconciled with God. That story was enough for the, all the questions that people have. We don't need arrogance and anger at the culture. We need compassion and clarity on the gospel. And just to go out with this good story as an alternative story. That's our mission. We've been sent into a chaotic harvest field. But we can have confidence in the middle of it. And so that's my prayer for us. Like you, you meet people on the street and they're just like confused about who they are. And you don't need to be worried. You just put your hand on their shoulder and you just say, can I just tell you that God wants to bless you and that he wants to invite you into such a better story, a story of relationship, a story of connection, a story to find your purpose in him. That's a good story. It's a story worth telling. It's a story that we should be bold enough to step into and go out and tell people not to be afraid. Not to be afraid of people, but to have compassion on them, to love them. So that's our invitation. Um, I just want to pray, and I, I realize that the problem with all these things is we could do like a lot more talk about this stuff, and maybe you have more questions, and we can talk about those later. Um, I want to invite you back for next week, though. We're going to do it's Thanksgiving week, and we're just going to talk about being thankful for our bodies. You know, it's not like controversial at all. Like, how do we just like live into this story? How do we live into it and accept who God has made us to be? And we're going to, it's going to be a little bit different than uh, we'd normally do. So just to celebrate Thanksgiving together. Um, all right. So Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for everyone here, God. I just pray you'd make us confident. You'd make us bold. Not bold to like uh, go out and fight, <laughs> Lord, but bold to just go out and just proclaim what's true, Lord, that you have a better story for people. And that it involves just how you've created them and that it's, it's worthwhile for people to live into those stories, that there's so much potential and beauty and blessing in just living as you've created us to be, God. And would you make us excited for that too? Lord, in our own lives, whatever our issues are, Lord, would you make us excited about who you are and what you call us to, God? Would you make us uh, bold and joyful and full of compassion? I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, no song. You're dismissed. Have a good one. <laughs>